Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 522 for the 11th of December, 2016. This week, when you want to print a huge image for display on a wall, upsampling is helpful, and an alien skin application makes quick work of the task. A new browser from the developers who created Opera might be worth your review because it offers several imaginative features, but beware the bugs. In short circuits, Amazon is testing a new kind of grocery store in Seattle, one with no cash registers and no checkout lines. Eight years after starting development of Windows 8, settings and the control panel still haven't been merged. Why? In spare parts, only on the website, crooks have wreaked havoc in 2016 by stealing data. In 2017 doesn't look like it'll be much better. If you're tired of trading privacy for convenience, you might be interested in an anti-social network launched in England. Microsoft calls for new entrants in its grant program aimed at providing reasonably priced internet access in underserved areas. A Japanese supercomputer can transfer one terabyte of data per second. That's fast. Photography can be so violent. First, the photographer frames you and may flash you, and then you're shot and blown up. Eventually, you'll hang. This is enough to make anyone shudder. All right, normally I don't start sections of the program with old jokes, but this time I thought it'd be a good idea, and we'll just have to see what develops. Ouch! Alien Skin's blow-up is the application to call on when you need to make a really large print. It's also easy to misunderstand the application's intent, to misuse it, and then to be disappointed. So let's consider both of those possible uses. We'll start with the right way. Resolution provided by today's digital cameras is amazing. Ten years from now, though, the quality will probably have advanced enough to make today's images look as rough by comparison as those from the late 1990s. Even though the quality is good, making a really large print is still a challenge. For high-quality images, we really need about 300 pixels per inch. You'll see a picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a picture of one of the cats, Scampy, the gray one. It was taken with an advanced point-and-shoot camera. The camera selected an ISO of 2000, meaning the image is somewhat noisy, and the full-size image is 6,344 pixels wide by 4,229 pixels tall. So given that information, what's the size limit if I want to maintain 300 pixels per inch? Well, that's easy. Divide 6,344 by 300. The result is 21.246666. That means the print, using the full image, would look razor-sharp up to about 20 by 16. But I want a print that's square, and I want it to be 5 feet wide. That's 60 inches. 
or about three times the width for an ideal print. And even worse, making it square means I'm going to have to crop the original. In fact, the crop I want reduces the usable part of the image to about half of its original width. If I do the math again, assuming the width is now about 3200 pixels, the best quality image would be only 10 inches wide. I want an image six times that wide. So I position the crop where I want it, tell Blowup that I want the image to be square and that it should be 60 inches wide. Running the math in the other direction, this means the image needs to be 18,000 pixels wide. How'd I get that? 300 pixels per inch times 60 inches. In other words, high school algebra stuff. Yes, it is possible to perform this kind of enlargement directly in Photoshop, but Blowup 3 is well worth the $100 price, or the upgrade from a previous version for $70, if it's something you do regularly. I brought the image back into Lightroom and zoomed in to see just the eyes, the whiskers, and the nose. Take a look at it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Any lack of sharpness here is the result of my using a point-and-shoot camera handheld in low light. Then I zoomed all the way into 100% on just one eye, the cat's right eye, the one in the picture on the left. That reveals that there's some noise generated by the camera's ISO 2000 setting, but overall the image is surprisingly sharp. The image is now indeed 18,000 pixels square. It checks in at just under 2 gigabytes. The result, if printed to 5 feet square, would be a wonderful, crisp, sharp image. That's what blow-up is intended to do. But it can be used the wrong way. In fact, it's easy to assume that an application that can upsample a normal image can also save a low-resolution image. You can try it and it'll help a bit, but no application, not even blow-up, can create information that simply isn't there. Again, on the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a picture of an office. The original picture was just 400 pixels wide. So if I wanted to print that, I'd get a good-looking print up to about an inch wide. At its original size, it looks okay. But what if I decide I want to upsample that image to 1,200 pixels wide? Well, I worked in Photoshop initially to illustrate what blow-up can and can't do to improve the image. Take a look at it when upsampled to 1,200 pixels across. Not very good, is it? I selected the same settings in blow-up and then did some fine-tuning with some of the other controls. Combining sharpening and addition of a bit of grain improves the look somewhat. But there's a clock in the picture. Take a look at the numbers on the clock. The numbers there and the letters on a newspaper on the wall are pretty rough. That's not Blowup's fault. It's simply the result of not having enough detail in the original image. While it has improved the result a bit, users will be disappointed if they expected a more dramatic result. So the bottom line for Blowup is five cats. When you need to upsample a digital image, Blowup is the tool to reach for. Nobody ever sets out to take an image that will need to be upsampled, but sometimes it happens. Maybe you have a snapshot that you'd like to have enlarged to display on a wall. Blowup makes it possible to upsample the image without creating a pixelated image. You'll find additional details on the Alien Skin website. 
There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Let's call this section, Why Vivaldi Might Be Worth a Try. Not the composer. By the way, that's the composer's music in the background here. The browser. Vivaldi's first beta was released a little over a year ago, and the stable version is currently 1.5. Vivaldi is based on Chrome, so all of Chrome's extensions are available. If it's Chrome, though, why would you want to try it? Well, that's easy. Although it is based on Chrome, it's more than Chrome, and in some cases, less than Chrome. First, quick detour. The music that introduced this section of the podcast is Vivaldi's Spring, Movement 1. It's part of the Four Seasons in a Creative Commons recording by the Wichita State University Chamber Players. If you'd like to hear the entire section, it's on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But let's get back to the browser. Vivaldi is a cross-platform browser developed by Opera Software co-founder and former CEO John Stevenson von Techner and Tatsuki Tomita. They were frustrated by decisions made by the current Opera developers to drop the Presto graphics engine and replace it with Blink. Vivaldi is updated every week. It currently has about one-third of 1% market share. It'll probably never be a mainstream browser, Still, I like some of the features that make it one of the most customizable browsers available. The name, of course, is a reference to the Italian composer Antonio Vivaldi. According to a Wikipedia article, the creators believe that name is easy to remember and will be understood worldwide. Those who like to be completely in charge of the applications they use will find a lot to like in Vivaldi. I particularly like the ability to create submenus on the bookmarks bar, I have a lot of bookmarks, and many of them can be organized and categorized. Vivaldi makes this extremely easy. Now, in fact, the ability to create submenus is native to Chrome, but it's not as easy in Chrome as it is in Vivaldi. Users can stack or tile tabs, annotate web pages, and even add notes to bookmarks. The browser is based on HTML5 and other modern web technologies. It supports various mouse gestures. You can also modify existing gestures or add your own. There's also a Chromeless UI function, Chromeless User Interface. And that term is needlessly confusing. In fact, it's almost wrong. Chromeless UI should really be called Full Screen Mode. The name that the developers selected seems to suggest that a browser based on Chrome has a mode that eliminates Chrome. That's not the case at all. Instead, pressing Control F11 turns off the browser's lowercase Chrome, the tabs, some menus, icons placed by extensions, the status bar, stuff like that. This is an advantage, particularly on devices with smaller screens. That's because it provides more usable area for the website. Customization is what appeals to me. By default, the interface is minimalistic, but desired components can be turned on. There are several color schemes to start with. The tabs can be placed at the top, where most browsers place them, or on the left, the right, 
or the bottom. Even the settings panel is unusual. Users can click from one panel to another, startup, appearance, themes, and so on, or select show all, and then just simply scroll through all of the controls. You can think of Vivaldi as Opera 12 on top of Chrome. There's even a speed dial on each newly opened tab. Under all that stuff, you'll find Chromium. Even if you're not someone who wants to control every aspect of your browser, it's worthwhile to download and install this guy because developers have taken some time to make that process very easy. You'll answer a few questions during the startup process to specify which basic appearance you want. After that, Vivaldi can import bookmarks from other browsers if you want it to. I mentioned the inventive features. Here are some of them. When a user loads a page, a progress bar displays information about the load process, the size of the page in bytes, how many elements are on the page. Vivaldi allows users to create a web panel. That's a small vertical sidebar on the left that contains something you want to see all the time. Maybe a weather forecast or headlines from a news service, perhaps a Twitter feed. Because the panel is narrow, Vivaldi will request the mobile version of whatever page you put there. You can show or hide images with a single click. If you're on a slow connection or you just don't want to see images on the page, click a little mountain range icon near the bottom right corner and you'll be offered three options. Show images, show cached images only, and no images. Also down there in the lower right corner, page actions. The user can turn on CSS debugging, modify the page to black and white or grayscale or sepia, intensify the colors, create a negative image of the page, defocus the page, convert the typeface to a monospace font, highlight the areas with focus or when the mouse is hovering, skew images, turn on reader view, or modify page transitions. Okay, some of these are useful, others are just silly. You can also tile pages, just as Windows 10 allows you to snap windows to the corners of the screen, Vivaldi allows you to select multiple tabs and then tile them in a single instance of the browser. Once tiled, the windows cannot be resized, but users do have several options, and it probably provides sufficient flexibility, at least for now. Vivaldi, of course, has private browsing. It's hidden on the File menu. Also, the browser adds the concept of a saved session. This is what allows the user to define a group of open tabs as a session and then reopen them whenever desired. Because Vivaldi doesn't have the concept of a multi-site home page, this turns out to be a pretty good substitute. I did find, though, that some sites in the saved session open and then immediately close, leaving nothing behind but an empty screen. The developers will probably fix that annoying bug sometime. Oh, and if you close a tab accidentally, you'll find it in the trash. Vivaldi displays that in the upper right corner, so you can immediately return to a page that you closed in error. Now, there is no shortage of bugs and minor annoyances. Fortunately, most of them are relatively minor. Still, if you're not used to working with early releases of new applications, you might want to wait a bit. Coming soon, Vivaldi's developers plan to add a service that will allow users to synchronize their bookmarks, history, passwords, and settings across different computers. This will be called Vivaldi Sync. 
Developers are also considering integration with email client M3. Currently, Vivaldi accepts Google Chrome extensions, but there are also plans to create Vivaldi-specific extensions. So, Vivaldi looks like a good choice for those of us who absolutely must tamper with the default settings of every application we use. Geeks, in other words. The bottom line for Vivaldi, let's say four cats, Vivaldi is well worth looking at, and it might become your favorite browser. It's still early in Vivaldi's development process, but this browser is a good example of what can happen when the developer of an application doesn't like the direction the new owners have taken. If you used Opera previously and you don't care for the new Opera, take a look at Vivaldi. Just beware the bugs. You'll find additional details on the Vivaldi website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. short circuits, go Amazon, go. Amazon's testing a new kind of grocery store in Seattle. There are no checkout lines and no registers. That could turn out to be a problem if you wander into the store without all of the necessary hardware. First, you need a cell phone with enough smarts to communicate with the store. Second, you need an Amazon account. If you have both of those, you can walk through the store, pick up the things you want, and the store will add them to your Amazon account. Amazon Go uses sensors, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to figure out what you picked up, and if you decide you don't want it, what you put back on the shelf. Amazon has been working on this for four years. The store isn't open to the public, not yet. That won't happen until early next year. Currently, only Amazon employees can shop there, and the tagline that the company's marketers have come up with is, Just Walk Out Technology. You'll find a little video from Amazon on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And as stores go, this is a relatively small place, just about 1,800 square feet. It stocks prepared foods and common grocery items like baked goods, bread, cheese, and milk. Amazon meal kits include ingredients needed to prepare a meal for two people in about half an hour. Amazon hasn't made much information public about how this system works or whether the store is envisioned to work in conjunction with or to compete with Amazon's online grocery delivery service, Amazon Fresh. There's also no curbside pickup, which seems to be a very hot item with traditional stores these days. No matter what operating system you use, if you want to change an operating system setting, first you have to find it. When Microsoft introduced Windows 8 in 2012, following four years of development, the control panel had been partially replaced by a settings applet. Microsoft then canceled Windows 9 at the last minute and released Windows 10 in July of 2015. Some changes still had to be made in the control panel. Most of us probably expected this problem to be resolved in Windows 9, and when that version failed to materialize, in Windows 10. But no, and even after the Anniversary Edition update, Settings is still not the one-stop shop for Settings. For many functions, users still need to find the control panel. 
Development began for settings in 2008. So a little quick math shows that Microsoft has been working on this feature for eight years now. And it's still not complete. Invariably, I open the wrong one. But at least both have reasonably good search functions. I spend a lot of time tinkering with Windows, and I've managed to come to terms with a reasonable approximation of what Microsoft might call something. But if you don't spend as much time under the hood, figuring out how to change something that you don't like may be more than just a slight annoyance. One of my major annoyances, for example, is the decision by Microsoft to hide file extensions. This is something I always turn off because it's more than just an annoyance. It is a security issue because people who try to plant malware on computers can hide the file type by creating what's called a double extension. If you want to see extensions, you might reasonably start in settings. But which pretty little icon should you click to make the change? Well, the right answer to that is none of them because it isn't changed in settings. What you need is the control panel. The right answer actually involves typing extension, or extensions, either one, in the search panel and then selecting show or hide file extensions. Keep in mind you're starting here in settings, but as soon as you click the link, it'll open the file explorer options in the control panel. You can also find this setting on the view tab of the file explorer, which is the place that experienced Windows users will probably look for it, even though the file explorer interface is considerably different than it used to be. Or maybe you want to change the way your mouse works. To do that, you'll probably need settings, the control panel, and maybe a link to the application that came with the mouse. Three locations. I keep thinking that there are enough really smart people at Microsoft and that a small team of them could probably work on coordinating this stuff. This week's program seems to be one with little math tricks, so let's try another one. Let's assume that even one person has been working on this problem since 2008. That's approximately 7,000 hours. Now, here's how I got that. I'm assuming that the employee has six weeks of vacations and holidays per year and is sick for two weeks a year, and spends half his time in agile scrum sessions. So here's my math. 52 weeks per year, less six weeks of vacation and holidays, less two weeks of sick time, times 40 hours per week. That's 1,760 hours, times eight years for 14,080 hours, and dividing it by two for all of those productivity enhancement meetings takes us back to 7,040 hours. 7,000 hours. What could you do in 7,000 hours? And what if there's more than one person working on this? Maybe there are 10 people dedicated to merging settings and the control panel. So then there's 70,000 hours. But let's reduce that by 30%. That'll give the developers time to talk about video games and overclocked gaming computers, sports, and their favorite selection of beers. So that takes us back to 49,000 hours. All right, all of that is just guesswork on my part. Maybe Microsoft doesn't have a team of 10 people working on this part of the operating system. Maybe they don't have even one. Given the velocity of the work, that seems actually to be more likely. But perhaps one or two people could be assigned to fixing the settings and control panel before the next major release. Well, you won't need 7,000 hours for spare parts only on the website. This week, Crooks have wreaked havoc in 2016 by stealing data, 
2017 doesn't look like it'll be much better. If you're tired of trading privacy for convenience, you might be interested in an anti-social network launched in England. Microsoft calls for new entrants in its grant program aimed at providing reasonably priced Internet access in underserved areas. And a Japanese supercomputer can transfer one terabyte of data per second. That's fast. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.